I left on Tuesday morning, hadn't time to buy any clothes, so I left the convent in my habit. Two nuns from the convent came with me and um, a lay person from the school I was teaching and I was going to a flat in Dublin with her sister. So I remember crying the whole way, it was about 100 miles, and I cried the whole way up. And I arrived at the flat and one of my friends said to me, better take the veil off you. <laughs> I didn't realise I still had the veil on me. So I went into the flat anyway and they brought in the luggage and um, had a cup of tea. And the nuns went off to visit somebody. When they came back about two hours later, I remember them remarking afterwards that I was different and it was this feeling that this weight had lifted off me. The decision was made now, and this weight had lifted off me, and I kind of said, I'm free, and I was at peace, you know? the 28th of December Holy Innocence oh, yes. <laughs> Holy Innocence and the party no, and yes, the, what did you do? No. the youngest in the house yeah. was to dress up as the superior oh, no. and the the, they took over for the day no. we used to have so much Very fun, fun over yeah. there the I suppose were the Holy they were the things really yeah. that we made the life great fun out of things like that and dressing out up for small, do you remember uh, uh, nuns jubilees and you know yeah. maybe yeah. somebody yeah. was having a golden jubilee yeah. the novices we'd all dress mm. up and it was great talent mm. you know and mm-hmm. we used to get out of the habit and doing plays mm. yeah. and, and dress uh, up as dress the characters up right. fun, wasn't we used to get great yeah. fun out of that we great ourselves we did the pirates of Penzance the gondoliers we did for jubilees as we went along yeah yeah and even even the, even the thrill of getting a, a day off, um, usually when a nun died, it was a three-day celebration, mm. you were allowed to talk at meals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a big thing. It was a big thing, wasn't yes. it? You didn't oh, have yeah. to ask the bishop for it, but we did. He'd, he'd come in <laughs> to sympathise. He had something you'd had to ask very special. Yeah, he'd come in to sympathise with the convent, and then, right. then Reverend Mother would say, the bishop has given us three days' recreation, which meant we'd have a sleep in the morning for half an hour, mm. and we would uh, talk, talk at our at meals, meals. Yeah. to celebrate the nun's life, you know? Right. And uh, that was a great... The talking at meals was a great treat, really. It was, wasn't it? It was very hard to use <laughs> the silence all the time. See, we yeah. were in an enclosed order. Well, do you know, I was thinking about that the other day. Our foundress founded our order to look after the poor. Mm. And that's what she wanted her nuns to be out among the poor. And and when when it came to them getting together, the bishops imposed enclosure on them just to make sure that they had the control. They wrote the rules, they imposed. The bishop was the superior. Uh, Well, I grew up in a very Catholic, conservative family where we had daily mass and the family rosary every evening. I was taught by nuns all the way up. I had the same nun from the time I joined at the age of four right up to sixth class. The same nun taught me the whole way up. So she had a very great influence on my life. And when I was about ten years of age, I remember her. She told my mother one day that she thought I'd be a nun. My mother came home and said this to me and I was really amazed, you know. After that, my father used to call me his little nun. So then I went to secondary school and again I was in a, with an order where there was a lot of recruitment. They really went out of their way to recruit girls into the convent, you know. So you really were influenced. You had retreats every year. And when leaving cert then, I remember um, we had a priest and um, he told me that I had a vocation. And in those days you believed everything in the, you know, <laughs> you just believed everything. And I was, I, I was uh, delighted, of course. Because at that, this was in the 1950s, and there were a lot. Of, there was a boom in vocations, in fact, in this time, you know. And um, I was very excited, of course, and delighted with myself. I went down to visit the convent and fell in love with them. Thought I'd never get in, and uh, had very twenty, very well, about eighteen, very, very happy years. It was the early 60s, and it was very, very different to what it is now. 
I suppose there were certain jobs for women that were open to women and it was kind of, you went, you became a teacher, you went to the civil service or you went to the bank. And and that was about it. Um, and there was none of the, I suppose it was before the time of the excitement and all the energy that came with the women's liberation movement. It was prior to that. Um I don't think it was what independent women did. I, I think what attracted me to the whole thing was, first of all, it was, I entered a congregation of teaching, a teaching congregation, and very definitely that attracted me because I always wanted to be a teacher. I loved children and I loved working with children and I wanted to be a teacher. So that was one thing. And I think the other thing was the whole mystery of the life. There was something very mysterious. I went to school to nuns and I think right through there was something about the mystery of it all that attracted me to it Yeah, I'd know brothers, sisters, aunts or uncles in religion and um, I think of of my old family I was more outgoing and more of a tomboy than the rest my mother used to say that had it been any of the others except you <laughs> I would have accepted it but um it just it's hard to say. I, I can't say a voice. I heard a voice from above. And it just was something I've always wanted to do. When I was at school, um, I used to write essays about going and join, being a nun, and used to be laughed at because I had to, I was quite a problem kid at school. Like uh, enjoyed myself and making fun and that, but it was something that was with me. When I, I used to go to Fairview School, and on my way home from. From school, I'd often go into the church and kneel, see how long I could kneel, and that practising kind of, when I was younger, this kind of silly thing of practising, wondering would I be able for this kind of thing. So, And then I didn't, I in the beginning, I went to school with the Francesca Charity till I was seven, and then I come out and I was in Fairview School, then with lay, I was in a lay school, so it wasn't the influence of the religious either, really. I was 18 at the time, and I was a normal 18-year-old, went to dances, had a lovely boyfriend, worked in Galligan's, Jen's Outfitters, and I belonged to the Children of Mary. And a sister came to the Children of Mary talking about vocations and was wondering would any of us be interested in returning on the missions with her. And I literally felt called, very, very strongly called, and I went to see her and gave my name, and that's how it really happened. So uh, later later on then we got measured up for our clothes and in Garovan Brothers, Camden Street. And in December I went to New Zealand. Now, when I mentioned to my mother, she was at the sewing machine at the time, and I said, Mum, would you mind if I went, to, if I joined the convent? Oh, she said, it's your life now. You do what you like with it. She was a wonderful woman, even though she had ten sons and two daughters. I never remember her raising her voice. Now, after that, she got up from the sewing machine. She says, you've knocked the stuffing out of me. So she was quite upset. She would never force anything on any of us. Our lives were our lives. She, was, she had terrific respect, terrific respect for our choices. And my father, you know, he was deeply upset. But no one would ever stand in my way. We teach enemies for our 
I started my postulancy in England. The postulancy really uh, consisted of six months and because I was waiting for the Mother General to come to take me to France, I did two months postulancy in England. And then when I went to France, it was only four months of postulancy before I took the habit. And uh, that was really a great event. event. And um, my mother and my sister, one of my sisters came over for the occasion. And they were there while I was on retreat because we had a week's retreat beforehand. And the taking of the habit was uh, a beautiful ceremony, really, is something we dressed as brides and uh, we went in and made our request to take the habit and our hair was cut and then we then left in the bridal gown and came back dressed in the habit. And I always remember my mother's face when she turned around in the chapel and saw me coming up the aisle in the black and she cried and cried. That was really um, a very emotional moment and I think for uh, for myself as well. I did three years in novitiate in France and then came home to Ireland. But I must say, they were, I was very happy, although it was difficult and I quickly caught on to the language and was able to participate as much as the French, but uh, my novitiate and on the whole was happy. Yes, mine was mm. too. I had a very happy time. It was a great joy to go into the convent and I loved the way I went down to visit the community before I entered and just fell in love with them. I thought I'd never, the day would never come when I'd go in. Went into the novitiate then and there were, there were about ten of us, I think, there and all the same age, you know, and you were learning about each other and learning about each other's families and then you were learning the rules and learning how to keep the rules and be good and hoping you'd make it. And then um, coming up to the reception again when you got the habit, usually mm-hmm. in the month of May after about mm-hmm. six or seven months, and I remember when you'd, be, you'd make an eight-day retreat beforehand and you'd be sitting in the chapel saying your prayers and the organist would be up in the gallery and this most magnificent music. It would just lift mm. you, it was so beautiful and the singing was all in Latin. Mm-hmm. And um, like that you went in and uh, you made your request. And we, didn't have, mm. we weren't dressed as brides though, that was a mm. big disappointment to me. But you uh, went in and made the request, the bishop was there. You made your request to the bishop and then you were brought out and you got the white veil. We were called white veils at that stage. That's right. And you came back in, your family was all in the, were in the chapel, you know, and then you were given this lovely white cloak. It's called the cloak of the church. So now you were a full, you felt you were a full nun. Now you had I started off teaching in the national school. I was trained in Carysford. And after two years then, a special school was opening beside us and I was sent away to Dublin to train in special education. So I went into the special school and that again was a great, great joy and a great excitement. We were starting from scratch, building a new school and in a new way of life and I loved it and I taught there for 10 years and it was during that time that I left after after 10 years in that school I left I, I, I really did work very hard and I found before I came out that I was very overworked I just wasn't I wasn't teaching alone I used to do a lot of typing and I got an awful lot of typing jobs in the confidence including all the secondary school typing I used to have to type out all the exams in all subjects, you know, typing out on st- with stencils on an old banger of a typewriter and I, w- I used to be exhausted but I could never say no one of my problems was that I could never say no and I learned that after I left that if I'd been able to say no I'm tired or something and but I, I had this kind of personality where I, I was I was trying to please people and anything I was asked to do I did it. And I, I remember the hours and hours I used to spend typing at night and, and then going then being up at a quarter to six in the morning and I also learned to drive and I did an awful lot of driving. I'd often come in from school in the afternoon and the Reverend Mother would be there waiting, drive me to Dublin and I'd drive to Dublin after school and then drive back down again and up again in the morning and I I just came, I remember the summer holidays of 76 being absolutely exhausted and I went away on a retreat and it was a directed retreat and the priest, we had to, it was an individual, we had to have an indiv- individual interview 
And I remember him saying to me, what's wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I know by your body language there's something wrong with you. And I just said, I'm just absolutely exhausted. I dread the thoughts of going back to school. And he said, maybe there's a physical, do you have a physical checkup? So there was another non-sister, somebody was on the retreat with me and she very kindly rang a doctor in Vincent's and I went up to him. And he just told me I was absolutely burnt out and that I should take a break from the school and the convent and that and maybe come to Dublin for a while and just get a break away from everything. It, it seemed, it's terribly hard to come to that decision. I spent about a year and a half fighting that fighting that decision. I knew I was unhappy. I knew I was getting restless. I knew there was something wrong. Vatican II had happened and um, there was a terrible, terrible turmoil in the community because we were changing from an enclosed order and the sub from subservience to kind of freedom and responsibility. We were to be responsible for our own lives. I found a lot of loneliness in that because community life kind of disintegrated. All the stability was gone. Nuns weren't doing anything things together anymore. And um, as I say, I was very overworked. So I um, I was driving... A lot of the nuns, including the Mother Jenna, were up in Dublin in the RDS, I remember, at a charismatic conference. And I was driving them back down, and I knew all the way, the whole way down, I'm going to have to tell her now tonight. So when we went back into the convent, I asked her to come into the parlour. I said, I had something to ask her. And I told her that I'd been to the doctor, and he suggested that I take a little break, that I was burnt out. And that was it. She just looked at me. I think she kind of took it personal. I, mean, I, was, I was a great fan. I used to drive her a lot around the country, and we were great friends, you know, and she knew, she knew the work I was doing, and she knew I was overworked. But um, she kind of took it personally, just almost as if I was a defector now and I'm letting the side down and she's the superior. It's almost as if somebody pointed the finger at her. She kind of took it personally. And I was very hurt by that, that she wasn't concerned about how I felt or what it was doing to me. And that, that hurt me. There was no consultation about it. She didn't say, why are you going or what's up with you or can I give you uh, maybe a sabbatical year, maybe a sabbatical year would be good for you or something like that, you know. And um, that, was, that was it. There was no more, no more talk about it until, and I left on the Tuesday to say goodbye to some of the, some of the community were there when I was leaving. And some of them I never saw, some of them I never said goodbye to. I never got a chance to explain why I was going. And then shortly after, about a month after that, I was going to come back down to visit people and visit the, the community or visit the school where I was teaching. And um, she said, I, would, I, would I dare insult my community by going back to visit the place? And that I was still under obedience to her and there was no way I was to put my foot in that town for another 12 months. She said, what would the people say? And the people happened to be the good people I was working with in the school and the good, who, were, who were supporting me all the way and who did keep in contact with me and came to visit me in Dublin. So that, that really, I remember going home that night to my sisters and I sat, sat up all night crying my eyes out. I couldn't believe that she, you know, that she was so horrible to me. And so at that stage I decided I'm just not going back. Then I had to, I had to go through the trauma then of signing the dispensation. That was terrible the day that came. I, the, mother, the mother general was in Dublin and she sent for me and I had to sign. And when I came to sign it, I didn't want to sign it. I just burst out crying and she said, come on, don't be, you've, you've had plenty of time. Think about it, you know, sign it. And I remember driving home that day and feeling I have signed my life away. It, it, it must be what it's like to get divorced, you know. I remember crying the whole way home and kind of I've signed on the dotted line now and that's it. But I got over that again. I mean, I had a job in Dublin and plenty of friends and I got on with my life. Then I discovered Falcher and um, joined that and made plenty of new friends and discovered that the people in the group that I was with, they were all former nuns, had gone through the same thing, you know, as I had. And we were great support to each other. And it, it, it's, it's a group, it's, it's a support group for people who have left and people who are in the process of leaving. Recently, one of the members in Falcher was leaving and she was going to sign her dispensation and she asked me to accompany her to the Mother General because it's a very lonely experience to sign your dispensation. And I kind of suggested to her maybe if, if she had a little liturgy 
or something, some way of an assembling the community together. And we talked about it. And when we went over, surely the, the Mother General and the community were there. They had beautiful flowers on the floor and lighted candles. We sat around in a group. We sang a hymn and there was a scripture reading. And in the prayers of the faithful, they thanked her for the years of service that she had given to the community and for the work that she had done with the children. And they wished her God's blessing and every happiness in the new life that she was starting and said she hoped they come intact. Now that was that was a great healing experience. It was it was a very moving experience for me. And it helped her. It's, it's, you know, there was there was no hurt there, the healing, there was a lot of healing took place that day. And I thought it was a lovely experience. I was seventeen and a half actually when I entered the convent. And um my biggest problem really on leaving was I was fifty one when I left and um I had to get a home, a mortgage, because uh, renting was uh, would have been more expensive really. And I had to take out a 15-year mortgage because of my age, uh, which leaves me paying that until I'm 67. So the work I'm doing really is quite heavy and I can't really envisage myself working full-time until then. And my mortgage is quite high. It's up to £400 a month. So I think uh, the financial side was the biggest problem because the congregation gave me 5000 which was really not an awful lot because I'd get a car for to make give me transport to work and that. From I came back from France, really, the way of life was different in Ireland. Um, communities were getting smaller. Um, I was living in community, first of all, we were four, and then it went down to three, and then we went down to two, and even living in a small number like that, with certain rules and regulations, is very difficult. You know, because you're facing one another all the time and there's demands being made and you're working full time. There's still all the housework to be done and the rest. And if one doesn't pull their their weight, the other one kind of has to carry the burden. And there was certain friction there as well. uh, That's why then it reduced to two. The two of us, I thought we could make it together. Did a year's uh, trial together and we were told if it worked out... um, they would buy us a house at the end of the year, which didn't come off really either. So the other sister stayed out for a year and then she went back in, but I remained out. Dear Angela, thank you for your letter concerning your pension, etc. I'm pleased you have settled down in your new way of living out the gospel message. As soon as I received your letter, I wrote to the pension scheme asking about your situation and I have just received their reply. They state that you have every right to the money invested in your name. The sisters I lived with, I must say, were very supportive and and still are. And they contact me and for my birthday and Christmas and Easter and I do call up. But what I found very, very uh, difficult is those at the top. No communication from Mm -hmm. those, from the rest of the congregation, from those at the top who, when you are leaving, said we'll be always, we'll always be there for you and if you need anything... And um, I think the the final blow, something that I found very, very difficult is when I wrote about the pension, about my pension and dif- mm-hmm. explained my difficulties. The letter I got back stating what I'd got out of the congregation over the years, I found that very painful. It's something I've never really come to terms with. I spoke to our new Superior General concerning your situation and Sister reminded me of what canon law states on the subject of a sister who lawfully leaves a religious institute. Whoever lawfully leaves a religious institute or is lawfully dismissed from one cannot claim anything from the institute for any work done in it, Canon 702. 
Sister then went into all you had received while being a member of the congregation. Study of leaving certificate subjects, general nursing training, training in midwifery, theological formation in matter day, spiritual formation. I've always been a person who found it very difficult to ask. I've always been known in the congregation for that I do it out rather than ask in the time I did make that request that uh, I got such a blunt um, answer I think it really marked me and I found it very I don't know, it kind of created an awful emptiness in me a, um, a feeling well that's all I meant to them, you know I was just a number, you know it's not important that I'm in difficulty or they're not interested and this kind of was uh, I find it a suffering When you decided to leave the congregation you received £5,000 in cash plus £600, which you received when leaving the house. Furthermore, you received a television and video, chairs, bedroom furniture and linen, kitchen utensils. Well, Angela, I think I have answered your questions and hope you are now clear on our situation towards you. With every good wish for the future, Sister Mary. I think the music stays with me as well. It was absolutely beautiful. And the amount of practice they put into it mm. was unbelievable. And um, I was dressed as a bride. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah. And then the going out, and there was something very poignant and very sad about the taking off of the white dress and the yes. putting on of the habit mm. and the cutting of the hair. Mm-hmm. I found that terribly yeah. difficult uh, because I had long hair at the time. Um, it was a very emotional day, but there was something, um, there was an awful lot of joy attached to it. And, a, and I suppose it was a very personal kind of thing, too, that there were parts of it that you couldn't even put words on or couldn't share. Do you remember the prostration? I do remember the prostration. I still have photographs of it, yeah. in fact, you know, where you were really were That's right. dying to the world. You That's were dead right. to the world and dead to yourself. And yeah, you were giving you were yourself leaving completely it all to behind. God, and your arms were outstretched mm. like That's a cross, right. and you were lying on the floor flat. Mm. Yes, and, and there was, was some total giving up of yeah. everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was some. I, was it the Vinnie Creator they used to sing? Right, I think yeah. it was. Yes, yes. But that was a very uh, touching time. Mm-hmm. And they did a lovely hymn from the Song of Songs. Then they it sang it in Latin. Beautiful hymn from the mm-hmm. Song of Songs. That we will be at fallen in love with Christ, yeah. whom I have seen, whom I have loved, That's and right. all that, you know. And you yeah. thought it was going to be whom forever. You really meant this is good. Whom my heart delights. Remember that lovely? It was in Latin, and they sang it beautifully. And really, your heart was so full of joy. Mm. You said, this is, mm. this is forever. This is mm. going to last forever. Mm. You know, it was a wonderful, wonderful... And it was your special day. It was. And yeah. the community celebrated with you and your family celebrated with you. And it was made you. very special. It was always made very yeah. special. You know, they, the really, yes. they really did make it very special. Yeah, they did receive. And I think for us all, it was forever. It was forever. It was, yes. Yes. It was yes. forever. I mean, that was, was the... Did any of you take mottos? Because no, we, we had to take a that, motto. No. Yeah. I had it inscribed. Yeah. Profession, I we took that and put it inside our ring. But I, I still have mine. And have you? We were asked yeah. to, we were asked to take a motto, and I was just a sissy of the cross. I took that name of the cross. Yes. I was given a sissy, but my motto was Deus Meus at Omnia, my God and my, my all. Mm. And uh, I still wear the ring, although I've left the convent mm. and I don't have vows. I 
my vocation is in my heart. Yes. Um, I don't feel I don't need religious life or I don't need vows. Um, to me, I left an oppressive system. I know in the beginning it wasn't oppressive. Ah. It was very joyful, as we were saying. Uh, Did you go through the change then, changing habit and all that? that oh, we yes, went through? Yes, yes, that was yes. all after the Vatican. Oh, yes. That was a major changeover, getting out of all this starch mm. and yes. plastic and having mm-hmm. to let your hair grow again and getting into short skirts and... Mm-hmm. The whole thing, like the, the, the security of the old system where you got up in the morning and you knew every minute of your day and you went to bed at nine o'clock at mm. night and that was it. There was, there was great security in it and, and mm. um, the, the whole thing just collapsed, didn't it? Yes. And that went, you know, yeah. you were going to, you were allowed to pray when you wanted to pray and you were to take on extra work and go out and go out in the mm. world and help and, yeah, and community life broke up, didn't it? Mm. I was slightly different there because I was in America at that period. Oh, were you? That was the period I was in America when all those changes were coming in. And I suppose America moved faster than we yes. did mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. The religious in America moved faster, yes. some of them, mm-hmm. but then some of them moved a lot slower. Yes. And um, I think the Irish nuns that were in America at the time, it's almost as if we got left behind somewhere or we got forgotten because we weren't... I came out on exclaustration four years ago. And exclaustration is where you have a lot of questions and you come out for uh, between one and three years to live outside and to live the life outside before you make a final decision to leave. So I came out on exclaustration four years ago and I lived outside for a year and a half before I made a final decision to stay outside. Um, making the decision was very, very difficult. Um, it was very, very frightening because I had never lived on my own. I had gone straight from home into a convent, so I had never lived on my own. So that part of it was very, very frightening. Um, the financial insecurity of it was extremely frightening because, again, I had no experience of that. Um, and while nuns took vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, um, we didn't have money to spend, but we always knew that there was money behind. Like if I got sick, I always knew I was going to be taken care of. If I had to get new glasses, I knew that the money was there for them. If I had to go to the dentist, I knew it was there. But I mightn't have had money in my pocket. And I suppose to me that's... I... That's not poverty, really, even though it's professed as poverty. I I don't consider it as poverty. And then I made the decision... Like, I thought about it an awful lot, and I was thinking about it an awful lot, but the decision itself came very quickly in the end. And I knew it was the right decision because there was a great peace came with it and all that um, unease and restlessness and everything, that wasn't there. And then I came out and it was quite exciting in the beginning because I suppose like everything new, it was definitely something new. I got um, an apartment and I was living in it on my own and I was travelling back and forth to work. And 
I I did that for a year and a half and then I made the final decision. Again, the final decision was very difficult to make and I think the most difficult part of it was the financial insecurity of it and not knowing what it was going to be like, where I was going to be in it, um, where, where was the congregation going to support me, were they going to consider my age and my state of health and a part of me believed they would and another part of me had questions um, now at this stage I suppose uh, four years down the line um, the difficult part of it the finance is still a huge problem um, but the isolation and the loneliness is now a much bigger problem than it was back then because I suppose I was caught up in the excitement of it but now the loneliness is hitting and the isolation of it and the difficulty of uh, finding a place in society when you come out um, breaking into a social side of life is I find extremely difficult I don't know how to do it even and I don't know how to go about it so that part of it is very difficult um, and I think I get caught up in work quite a lot which comes from the financial insecurity and it also comes from I don't know how to, to socialise so all that part of it's difficult I'm in a wonderful position at the moment so different from when I actually, in 1982. In 1982, I was so bad that I had to be sent to a psychiatric hospital. And the position I was in before I went to the psychiatric hospital was, was frightening because I used to take a sleeping tablet at two o'clock in the afternoon to try and stop my mind and try and preserve my sanity. And... Then in the psychiatric hospital, I was only there, I was there a year and a bit, maybe a year and a half, when my community wrote and said, they, they said, Lena, we want you to make a request of the community by September. So I wrote and asked for clarification. A, a request for what? Because they knew I was doing well and they knew I wasn't ready to be discharged. A letter came back and said... We want you to make a request of the community by September. They couldn't clarify it because they couldn't put it into writing. We want you to leave. Well, that's what I felt. Anyway, I didn't make a request. And when November came, around then, I got a letter from my Reverend Mother. It was a typed letter, but our footnote at the end in her own handwriting said, we have made a firm decision no longer to fund they'd made a decision not to pay any more fees for me in the psychiatric hospital. Now, I hadn't been discharged. There was no discussion with my doctor, my psychiatrist, my therapist. And therefore, I had to look hard at my situation. Do I go back into the convent? Do I go back down that road where my mind was on the verge of snapping? And I know that for a fact. I didn't know just what I would do, would I go mental, would I jump. Therefore, I had a moral obligation to save my sanity. Therefore, I was left with no choice but to... I asked for two years' exclaustration to 
come home and get well. They even wrote and said, why two years? Almost, why can't you go now? I must have become an embarrassment to them. Anyway, I wrote back and said, should I need further hospitalisation? I'm not well enough to work. I will need your financial support. Should I die, I'll need you to bury me. So I, I came home then, but I came home actually their rejection and that final decision to pay no more fees for me, I think it cut me deeper than I even realised. Because even when I came back, I was walking the streets, crying my eyes out. I got a flat in Michael's estate, and it was such a bad place to live in, such a turmoil, sometimes at two o'clock in the morning, which was wrong of me. I'd walk down to James's hospital, walk around the grounds crying, but I didn't know what to do. So I literally, it's wonderful that I am so well now because I know what I have gone through and I know how close I was to losing my sanity. Now, in Michael's estate, I did apply for a transfer, but it really took 10 years. And so I was grateful then to get a flat in Leicester, a corporation flat. It's one room, my bed my television, my armchair, my little table. I try to keep it as simple as possible because I like space. But I dearly would love one bedroom. But however, I haven't got that. I have a little bathroom in there, shower and a kitchenette. And it's a lovely area. It's a very quiet area. Lovely neighbours. I've met other nuns. Amazing how they've been put in my path. I was sitting having coffee one day and this person said, do you mind if I sit beside you? There was no other room. It was in Henry Street and I think it was the Kyle Moore or the KC. And it turned out she had been in religious life. But different from me, her psychiatrist had told her she was going on exclaustration. She'd never heard the word. She ended up in Dublin in a hostel. And even in the hostel, she was told that she... Her bags were packed one day. Her room was needed. She she walked the streets looking for where to go. She knocked on this house that looked what she thought might be irrespectable to ask, did that person know where she could get B&B? And that lady took her in. I know, when I say several others, I know at least five others who are living on disability in corporation flats. Other nuns who've left, some haven't even left, some are out on exclaustration, but they've literally been abandoned. So there are stories that are absolutely horrific and barbaric and yet done by people who are professing to be professional followers of Christ. And I don't know how they can see how they can't see what they're doing. I used to find the harshness of the voices 
I guess my mother, even though there's a huge family of us, my mother was so gentle. You never heard her voice. And then you go into a, a system where the harshness hit me, the harshness of the tones of their voice. And, uh, and your I eyes. found the cold very difficult. Yes. You know, especially um, the heating system was old. And I found the cold of the house. You know, the house was very big. Yes. Now, I wouldn't have experienced the harshness in the voices. I definitely wouldn't no, have experienced wouldn't that. No. no. Uh, they were very gentle, in, if anything, when they spoke. Um, but I, w I have memories of the cold. And I remember on a Sunday morning, the heat up in the bedrooms would go off at a certain time, you see. And I remember going up after Mass and sitting on this big pipe that was, because I was frozen. Mm -hmm. um, so the heat or the cold of the place. Yeah. But trying to pray in the chapel at six o'clock in the mornings. Yeah. You know, getting out of a bed, mm -hmm. being wakened by a bell and going to the chapel at six o'clock. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the and heat freezing would be on. cold, the heat you couldn't, would be calling, on. See, coming on and you couldn't yeah. pray. Mm -hmm. no. Like later on, after the Vatican Council, we had our choice to pray when we like. If it was left to yourself, you could pray at night or morning. If it was left to each individual to decide when she wanted to pray. And uh, and you, you could pray in the mm. community room, you could pray sitting in an armchair, but in those days it was on these hard benches in the chapel at six o'clock in the morning when you'd be freezing. And you see, the, the old heating systems, I remember where I was, the old heating system was solid fuel. And there was a man and he was supposed to be shoveling in the coal below. But to be nice and warm down there, down there. he might fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> the poor nuns would be petrified up in the chapel, yes. Yeah. And all the rules and regulations you were weighed down yes, the rules and regulations. Yes, Every moment of your day yes. was, was And you that, don't eat outside the refectory. Oh anyway, no. where would you get the stuff to eat outside the refectory? Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, yeah. there was no way you could get it. And if you did, you had to get on your knees and accuse mm, yourself. That's right. I accuse myself of all the faults I have committed in the discharge of my duties. Mm. Any breach of charity or by for eating outside the refectory. Talking after the night bell. And these were your sins. Mm -hmm. Banging doors. <laughs> it was ridiculous. The great emphasis yeah. on silence and quietness. And yeah. There was a lot of emphasis on mortification and penance in those days. It was kind of a negative spirituality in the sense that we, you... you um, the world was evil and I was a si we were sinners, you know, and the whole emphasis was on humility and penance and um, saving your soul. And now it has changed. It, well, it, the new theology would be that I'm I'm special and God God loves me. I don't have to earn God's love. God loves me unconditionally. But the old days was mortification and penance. And if you did something wrong, you'd have to get down on the floor and you know kneel on the floor and ask ask pardon. There was there was this thing about death to self and death dead being dead to self and dead to the world. That the world was evil and the body was evil. You know. And, and, I mean, the world is beautiful, and uh, the world in those days was regarded, of course, as sin, the sinful world, you know. But, um, so there was a, I had a lot of unlearning to do. I went to psychosynthesis through Eckhart House, and I discovered a lot of, that I had to unlearn a lot of the things that I had learned through kind of a negative spirituality, you know. Things are more positive nowadays. The good times really were with the companions. They were good. They, that's where the friendships that we made. Um, so the joys would be mainly with the companions, but not with the system. And it's the same at the moment. I wear the ring, as you see. I, I, I still am the spouse of Christ. I'm not looking for any other way of life. And, but I've left a system. I've left an oppressive system. And I believe vocation is in the heart. It's not in walls. It's not in houses. It's not in systems. I believe 
that my vocation is still my vocation. I, I think religious life as we know it um, will go. I don't see a future for religious life as it is. But I could see a religious life where there would be a temporary commitment. Because I think, anyway, you, the youth of today and, and the mentality of today is more geared towards that. And peop- and apart from religious life itself, you see, years ago, when you a certain work you wanted to go, if you want to go out on the missions, you want to go abroad, you had to be religious. Whereas a lot of people can do that now as lay missionaries. And they go out and do an awful lot of... And they can do it for the time they choose and come back without a complete commitment. And I think it's... For the mentality of today, it's more suitable because even for marriage, there's less and less people committing themselves to marriage for life either. I do think that there's a future for religious life, but I don't think the future is in the religious life that we have known up to this. Uh, I think religious life as we have known it up to now, it needs to die and it needs to be allowed to die. And from that death, something new will emerge and something new will grow. But while we try to cling on to the old form and everything that went with the old form in some way we're smothering what's trying to to blossom and trying to grow Um, I could see um, religious life in the future as being very very exciting and um, a very good place to be for those who have a feel for it and who have a vision around it but I would see it as extremely important that um, that there is a vision there that people are um, moving towards a vision of some kind um, and that that vision be based on the Gospels and that some little bit of for people coming together to try to to live this life and try to to nurture it and help it to grow that people living together need to have um, a strand of this vision they don't all need to have the vision the same vision but they all need to have a little strand of it it's like a, a tapestry that if they all put their strands to it it will end up as something worthwhile <laughs>